All right, let's pray and get started. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this church, for gathering us together, for calling us to assemble. We can take that one day a week to experience our rest by gathering together and praising you. Pray that you would be with us as we study your word, even with all of its difficulties. We can acknowledge and have thankful hearts that you are with us and that you will give us wisdom to understand your word and apply it and to be able to appreciate the richness that is in the text this morning. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you hear that ring? We all good? Okay. Awesome. Because if I get loud, which I'm prone to do, yeah, you know, just make sure we don't. Okay, cool. Thanks, Brian. All right. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Second Peter. We will continue in our study of chapter three at what is really in a very interesting part of this book. That is the day of the Lord. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time last Lord's Day exploring verse 10, so much of what is said today will be in reference to that. So to avoid being overly repetitious, I would commend that sermon to you. Uh, it was pretty in-depth. We hit a lot of scriptures, and, and so if anything today is unclear, uh, l- listen to uh, today's sermon in that context, because they definitely go together, and they share the same theme. So... 2 Peter chapter 3, let's start at verse 10, and we will read through verse 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for? and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. May God be blessed by the reading of His Word. Today's sermon title is this, How Should We Then Live? The Lord's Day or the Day of the Lord, Part 2. And... I have deliberately left out an exposition, even though it belongs to the same paragraph of verse 13, because I took one look at that verse and figured that in and of itself makes for a good sermon. That'll preach. So we're going to delay this Lord's Day and then go through that in some detail uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing. But today we will explore verses 11 through 12. And I got some really good feedback based on last week's message. Um, even some friendly disagreements. And of course, the question arose along the lines of, okay, well, what if we hold a different view? Is that a make or break? And I would say, absolutely not. It is, it is not a make or break kind of thing. I think there is, there is um, plenty of uh, wiggle room here as it pertains to the realms of orthodoxy and your particular convictions of the eschaton. Um, I am presenting what I believe is the most internally consistent and and clear interpretation, but just to let you know, this is not one of these uh, presentations where you must believe this, you must abide by this particular interpretation, or you are not welcome here. I don't mean to come across that way at all. So what I'm saying is 
that in texts like these, especially considering, considering their difficulty, um, there, is, there is some doctrinal liberty, and we are free to engage in friendly discussions and debates and even disagreements and uh, still go home at the end of the day as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I did want to make that very clear to you guys. Um, but again, it's been the seedbed for a lot of really good uh, and intense discussion. Um, but my interpretation of this, referring to the day of the Lord, uh, based on uh, last week's study, is that these are local judgments based on cosmic language, but they are judgments upon Jerusalem specifically, and then really the old creation order at large. So, just because these are local judgments, another thing we want to be clear about is, because they're local judgments does not mean that there is no application for us today. In fact, I have argued in the past but the fact that these are historical local judgment means that there is more application for us today. And of course, we've tried to flesh that out throughout our study of Second Peter because this parousia, this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is not the first place that this is mentioned in Second Peter. It's mentioned before. So we're trying to really tie all of this together and flesh out some of the more important points, especially application. And so we come to an important application part in our text today. So we will simply walk through it. So let's take a look at verse 11. See what Peter says. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. So that's the, that's the opening statement. So of course, what does it mean in this way? Well, you look at verse 10 and there's a couple things going on. One, of course, was that the day of the Lord is fast approaching. So from the, from the standpoint of the first century church, there was going to be a day of the Lord a specific judgment and even salvation, a saving work uh, by God through Jesus Christ when He appears, when He shows up, when He becomes present in judgment over apostate Israel. And again, thereby the entire old order of the heavens and earth. And He says, this day of the Lord will come like a thief. So it will come in an unexpected manner. Right? Everyone's sort of especially unbelievers, they're going about their life, they're doing the things they have always done, and so they are not watchful as Christians are always supposed to be. Even though this has already happened, we are still called to be watchful Christians. No different today than from 2,000 years ago. So we are to keep on the alert so that this day of the Lord would not come upon these churches like a thief. They learn to anticipate it, to expect it, and prepare themselves for it, especially seeing that this judgment was not the end. In fact, it marked a new beginning, as we will see in verse 13, this new heavens and new earth. And so there is plenty of application, there is plenty of call to attention, there's plenty of instruction that the church is then to take and basically run with and keep proclaiming the gospel. It does that. That's the joy of the church. Even in our anticipation of God's judgment, there is still plenty for the church to do. It does not end for us. And so there is specific instruction for these churches that has plenty of application for the churches today. So it is said that the heavens and the earth, look at verse 10 again, the heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So to sum up, Peter is borrowing from Old Testament apocalyptic judgment language and applying it to the situation at hand. That's it all summed up. And it was a local judgment in which the heavens and the earth and its works 
will be burned up. So rather than this great cosmic fire, this is a local judgment in which fire was definitely involved. Jerusalem was burnt to the ground. Just as Jesus prophesied, His words came true that not one stone would be left upon another. It was all turned over. It was completely leveled. And of course, that was a fulfillment of a word of judgment spoken to by Jesus spoken of by Jesus, and of course, passed on to his apostles and disciples who repeatedly, in the decades ahead after Jesus' ascension, repeatedly warned about this coming judgment. And so much of their instruction to the churches uh, surrounded perseverance, endurance, staying strong, continuing to grow, continuing to gather together. As they, as, as, as Paul says in Hebrews, I believe it's 10.25, as they see the day approaching. The day of judgment was approaching. That doesn't mean you stop gathering together. Keep enduring. Keep meeting together. And when there is that great shakedown, what can't be shaken will remain. And that, of course, is the church as well as the new creation as a whole. But there is that description of judgment. And, of course, it lends itself to the severity of the judgment. And so there is no confusion in the church's mind as to the suddenness and severity of this kind of judgment. And so we come to a second part of this study of the day of the Lord today in verse 11. So Peter's looking back at that. So in light of this, all these things which are to be destroyed, that is, put away, right, loosed, undone, how then should we live? That is the question. This is going to be a catastrophic judgment for the old Judaic order and and the old creation from which there will neither be recovery nor victory. Christ is triumphant in this judgment, and so are His people. So what we can say is that though this marks at least an inaugurated end for the old creation, and of course the destruction of Jerusalem is the earnest or down payment of that destruction, it is not at all that way for the church. Remember, God makes a distinction between those who are His and those who are not His. And so, of course, what does that mean for the church? And so the question comes in verse 11, since this is in view, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So in some sense, this question can be taken as a rhetorical one. We look what's going to happen to Israel, to the old creational order at large. So, should you then live in a way consistent with that? Well, absolutely not. And that was part of the challenge of Paul's instruction and Peter's instruction, right? Don't cling to what is fading away. Stop grasping for that which is going to be destroyed or that which is going to be made obsolete. You are a new creation in Christ. Cling to the old creation and preach the gospel of the good news of the kingdom. So, of course, we would say, no, we're not going to live consistently with the old creation. We're going to live in step with the new as the Spirit empowers and leads the church. And we bring up this situation precisely because we see it around the same time, even in the book of Revelation, where the Lord Jesus Himself, as He's walking among His churches, caring for them and disciplining them, He warns compromising churches who have given quarter to the unrighteousness that is spelled out in the book of 2 Peter, especially as it pertains to the doctrine of Balaam, the Judaizers, the synagogue of Satan. There was compromise in these churches. And they've allowed this unrighteous behavior, these false gospels to prevail. And of course, the, the warning from the Lord is real. Coming to them suddenly 
like a thief. Because that's sort of their mindset. They have fallen into this, this mindset of, 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 of unwatchfulness, of blindness, not awaiting the coming of the Lord. And so, of course, if that goes unchecked, if there is no repentance, then the Lord will come to them and remove their lampstand. So there's a serious warning there for us as well, in addition to an encouragement. But I think one thing that we have to see in all of this that actually pervades even to today and even until the end of the church age is that the church can be very sure that we have a purpose, right? If, you, if what you're clinging to has been put down and destroyed, you've basically lost your purpose. You've lost your end goal to where all you can really do is conjure up one. More on that later. But there's a very important word that connects itself with this, and that is the word telos. An end goal, a summing up, a purpose fulfilled. Same word that Jesus even uttered from the cross to telestai, right? It has been finished. The work that the Father had sent Him to do had seen its fulfillment. Jesus accomplished what the Father sent Him to do in regard to a perfect ministry, a perfect life, the fulfilling of the law, and of course, making final atonement for the sins of God's people. So there was a telos there. And so, of course, the people of God live in light of this telos. We live in light of this of the goals of the new creation. We have purpose. And that's a very important thing for the Christian. I think it's something that, I mean, when we think about in light of this, there is a struggle for the unbeliever to grasp, grasp any kind of purpose. Thinking of... Uh, the very title of the sermon, How Should We Then Live? There's a great book by Francis Schaeffer of the same title, and he says this, The ironic fact here is that humanism, which began with man's being central, eventually had no real meaning for people. On the other hand, if one begins with the Bible's position that man is created by God and in the image of God, there is a basis for that person's dignity. I mean, that is really the bedrock of, of our preaching against abortion. We are arguing for human dignity. And we do that on the basis of what Scripture says regarding the image-bearing nature of every person. And so life ought to be cherished. Life ought to be defended and protected. We should speak up for those who are most vulnerable and who cannot speak up for themselves. But once you, dis- once you throw that away, once you dispense with the Word of God, you really have no foundation to stand upon. You have no basis. You have no starting point, but nor do you have any telos. You have essentially removed any sense of purpose from your life and the, life and the lives of others. They rebel against the kingship of Christ and cling to this old passing away order. And so, without that purpose, without that telos in mind that we as Christians enjoy, what, what is the plight of man then? I think there's several, several things, and Again, I was really indebted to several able commentators who pointed out uh, some different things. But here's a few of them. I think the first thing we do, again, if purpose is removed, there's, there's indifference. You don't care, even though you don't even have a basis for being indifferent. Any, any caring of what's happening is, is removed. And so, of course, your mindset is, we eat, we drink, for tomorrow we die. And I think what happens often uh, in this kind of mindset is there is this sort of relentless pursuit of pleasure, right? In the here and now, in this application of secular humanism. Try to enjoy it, even though you have no basis for what joy is. 
You pursue these things anyway. I think another thing we see, and we see this very often today in in a variety of manifestations, is that once we remove the the Scriptures from our understanding of of what purpose even is, is we, we end up inventing our own cause. You talk to any individual person, any individual unbeliever, and everyone will seem to have a cause that they're fighting for. It's amazing, right? And it's contradictory. As, as just as Schaefer says, it's, it's ironic. Because once you remove the biblical God, the biblical worldview, you have no point of even having a cause. Why do you care so much about your cause? You know, you're marching for, you're marching for equality. Why should you care about equality? You're marching for women's rights or a woman's right, a woman's right to choose. Why do you care about that? What is your basis? And of course, what is the end goal of that? What is the telos? There really is none. I think one of the logical things, and this is another, another thing on the list, is despair. There is simple despair. Really what we would call a deliberate rejection of the gospel. There is something about despair, even today, that is, that is willful. I mean, we've talked about uh, Peter's uh, understanding of of these mockers and scoffers, right? They are willfully ignorant. In verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, right? We call that being stupid on purpose. They have the truth, it's been taught to them, it's been made very clear, and yet they deny it deliberately and with forcefulness. And really, the only logical end of that is despair. Just a a, a real, a, a, a sadness and listlessness of heart. At least that's consistent. Once you discount the gospel. You know, you think about this in the context of the first century. These are some of the options that could be employed by those who clung to the old, the old order and did not receive Christ as, as both King and Savior. These are their options. Because everything they're clinging to is going to be destroyed. It's going to be put away. And so there is sort of this, this listlessness, almost a even if there's not despair, almost a, dri- a drifting through life with very little pursuit of meaning, with very little pursuit of truth. And in some cases, if there is any of that, once again, it's inconsistent. There's no real foundation for even desiring to pursue those things. And in some cases, it's on accident. But the basis, remember, everything that these false teachers and, and spiritual apostates in the first century, everything they believed basically depended on the temple still standing. That was, that, that was the symbol, the edifice of the old order. And as long as that stood, remember, they, in their own mind, had a basis for doing what they were doing, even if that meant a completely godless lifestyle. They even pr- perhaps saw the temple as a basis for that, for that kind of living. And so once that was destroyed, their very understanding of of, 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 or their very, their very power base was crushed because they invested so much of it. And so what is left but a husk of a man once the very basis of everything you believed in is destroyed? It's not unlike in uh, Lord of the Rings when Sauron is, is finally destroyed. What happens? Frodo casts the ring into the fire. And what happened was Sauron had poured so much of his being, hate, and malice into the ring once it was destroyed... What was even left of Sauron? But what we witnessed was the complete collapse of Mordor that was held together by his power. And so there's, there, there's so much, there's so little left of Sauron, can you really call him Sauron anymore? 
It's almost like he's lo- he himself has lost his identity. And so in the same fashion, in this, fir- this first century mindset that clings to the temple and the old order and apostate Judaism, once the temple goes, any semblance of identity is pretty much crushed. And so the same thing continues to happen to humanity in a variety of ways today. That once we dispense with the biblical worldview, once we basically disregard the new creation in Christ, not only is purpose gone, but any sense of identity is gone. And even the church, we've said repeatedly, and Paul, I think, reinforces this in the book of Galatians, we cannot know ourselves apart from our life in Christ. There is no identity. There is no you apart from your life in Jesus. And so any understanding of who we are begins and ends with the work of Christ. And so that is the hope that we continue to cling to even as old, 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 old apostate power and religious structures are put under the feet of Christ. Remember, Jerusalem was just the beginning. And throughout, and throughout the church age, we can, we can bear witness to the fact that, it, that one structure after another is put under Christ's feet. And His authority over them is made clear. And so those, we, 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 the, and the options are clear. You either repent or you perish. Kiss the Son lest you perish. Psalm 2. I think Barclay sums it up, as, sums it up pretty well here. He says, If there is nothing to live for but extinction and the world is going nowhere, there can enter into a life a kind of lostness. He must simply drift in a kind of lostness coming from nowhere and on the way to nowhere. And it is the darndest thing that people would rather be in this place than come into the kingdom and the new creation by faith in Christ. That is a sad thing. And what is equally sad is when the church allows these attitudes to infiltrate. And I think they manifest themselves in several different ways. And, and, and though a true believer will never come to complete despair, it's simply inconsistent with the, with the Spirit's presence. I think we see these attitudes of oldness rear their ugly head. And it can be in the very simple things. We don't have to provide an exhaustive list, but you think about it. It's whenever we do things half-heartedly. right? We work in the Lord's garden. We, le- we are laborers in His field. And these attitudes infiltrate when we do things half-heartedly. And not heartily as unto the Lord. It could be something as simple as not completing things, not finishing a task, or doing things with an unthankful heart, making excuses, not growing, not serving, always making oneself the exception to the rule. Oh, but I'm a special case. It can even be something as simple as treating the Lord's day with little to no regard, being here with a joyless heart, not anticipating God to work, not anticipating God to to, to love His church, to prune it, and to grow us. That's what I think happens. Is even though the, 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 the new creation is really on the move, right? Putting, putting down everything that arrays itself against the knowledge of God, I think in some very simple and yet profound ways, we, we undermine the work of the new creation. Sometimes we train ourselves to be unteachable. We train ourselves to be discouraged. And I think it's time we, we're really honest with ourselves and ask if those things are present within our own body, present within our own hearts. Simply, what is it that, 
that puts us off concerning the things of God? What is it that, that makes us treat the things of God with such a, with such a half-hearted approach? And one thing that adds to this tragedy is that in many ways we've trained ourselves to be discouraged or put off when these observations are even made about us. And those observations need to be made. And so that kind of brings us full circle to the text again. Peter asks this very important question. We belong to the new creation, not the old. So in light of that, with the old being done away, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What sort? comes from a Greek word which speaks of quality or origin. can even refer to a country, a race, or a tribe. A kind of person. It shows up in Matthew 8.27 when Jesus calms the storm for His disciples. It says this, the men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? What sort of man is Jesus? Who are we beholding? Where, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of questions came up throughout the ministry of our Lord. Where is He from? What kind of man is this? Well, that, beca- that, be- that became abundantly clear. We read the blessing of this in 1 John chapter 3. See how great a love, right? What manner, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. That we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. So sorts matter. Origins matter. Quality matters. You see this, it says in 1 John 3, the world does not know Him. I think that, that helps pers- explain the perplexity of the world that we can even experience a love of God that does such radical transforming work in our hearts that brings us from darkness to light, that brings us from death to life, from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of God's Son. There is something, I think, perplexing, vexing, and irritating to to unbelief. I cannot really perceive this. And yet, we are the children of God. Not Not a love that is invented or twisted to reflect the heart of man, but a love of God that brings us into a blessed into blessed fellowship with Him, with the Father Himself. Also, in light of what's going on in 2 Peter here, I think Mark 13.1 is probably the most significant uh, passage. And remember, Mark is, by all accounts, Peter's reckoning of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So in Mark 13.1, we read this, As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, it's like you'd expect, oh yeah, it's a beautiful building. It's great. Yeah. Look at the trim work on that. But Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. See, we explored that last week. It's all going to burn, right? Not all, all of it, just all of it. As Jesus explained to unbelieving Israel. Your house is left to you desolate, right? That house is going to be a desolation. It was going to be put down. It was going to be completely destroyed. Why marvel at its beauty? But here is why we go to a passage like this. In the New Testament, and this was foretold of in the prophets, but especially when it comes to Peter and Paul, we see throughout their teaching a, an identifying of, this, of a transition going on. A transition is occurring. 
And this transition is the identity of the temple. So once again, in the old creation, under the old covenant, the temple is this physical, visible stone edifice and is the center of worship for the Jews. It was designed as a house for the Lord so that God could dwell in the midst of His people. So, now that Jesus Christ has inaugurated in the new creation through His death and resurrection, the new covenant church is now the what? The temple. The temple of the living God. As Peter says in his first letter, I think it's chapter 2, he he identifies these churches as living stones. And they are built on a new foundation who is identified as Christ, the living stone. And so as we are united in Him and built above Him, we are living stones because we share His life. So in this passage, there is simultaneously great encouragement and yet grave warning. In that, with this transition taking place and the old stones the stones of the temple being broken apart and turned over, Peter's readers can be reminded what sort of people ought you to be. Do not become like the stones of the old temple. And that's not going to happen. Then don't act like it. Be who you are in Christ as living stones, as this new temple. And so even even in this, there there is a call to attention. How should you then live? This is echoed in Romans 13.11. Listen to this. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. I mean, that, that is a timeless reminder for the church. A very gentle, I would say, and yet serious exhortation. A lot of us are sleeping. Right? We may be in the vineyard, but we're, we're, we're leaning on the plow. Right? We're not, we're not busy working for the Lord. We're not diligent in our application of how He has gifted us. And so for many of us, it is time to awaken from sleep and pay attention and to be watchful in regards to what the Lord is doing through His church today. Once again, no different today from 2,000 years ago. The church is called to question itself, how should we then live? How should we then live? And even Peter says this, you know, what what sort right, of people you ought to be. Right? There's a sense in which Peter's people know this. You know how you ought to be. You've been instructed in this. But look what he says. Kind of gives them a hint. The sort of people you ought to be in holy conduct and godliness. So of course, this, this links with what I just said about the church being, being the temple. So the first issue here is holiness. Again, two things define the life of the church that define us still today. The first, of course, is holiness. I think that's one of the initial characteristics of the church that we are called to recognize. That the people of God are a holy people. So we talked about this issue way back in 1 Peter. Peter is, in 1 Peter, Peter quotes uh, chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, but he quotes from Leviticus 11, 19, and 20, where God repeatedly tells Israel, You are holy. Be holy. I am holy. Right? This is, this is the defining characteristic of the people of Israel, was holiness. And he says, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says this, 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, this was a favorite pet doctrine of mine for a while, and one of the distinguishing factors was this. Holiness alludes primarily to two things, right? Not, so not otherness, not uniqueness, not separation. But this thing, first and foremost. One, it, holiness we understand as God's devotion. God being devoted both to, both to His own glory, first and foremost, and from that to the good of His people. We, when we say God is holy, we are fundamentally saying that God is committed, above all, to His own glory, but also, because He is holy, He is committed to the good of His people. And think about the way First Peter uses this. Be holy in all your behavior, right? We are to be committed to the glory of God in everything we do, in all of our behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So it is God's devotion. Secondly, it is God's desire. When we find that God is holy, and we, we kind of understand holiness based more on context than word roots, but when God declares Himself as holy, one thing that is perhaps the most outstanding is, a, is God's desire to dwell with His people. He desires to fellowship with them. He desires to invite them into His presence and dwell with them. In a particular situation where He is able to reveal His mercy, His grace, His goodness, His justice, His righteousness, all of His benefits to His people, to those whom He has redeemed and rescued. And you know, here's the thing. That desire has not dissipated in the least. God still desires to call a people to Himself. It's part of redemption. That's almost a, a, a recovery a recovery of what was lost in Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. They were put out from the presence of God. And so when God draws near to His people, when He, when he calls a covenant people to Himself, He desires to dwell near them and among them and to bless them. Why? Because He wants to and because He's God and who are you to say otherwise? But that's, what the, that's what God desires and that's just holiness. But we also find another distinct characteristic that I think well sums up what the people of God are to be like, how we should then live, and that is, and that is godliness. And as you remember, the Apostle Paul speaks of godliness in the book of 1 Timothy as a means to great gain. Right? To be, when we are godly, we don't lose anything. Right? We, do not, we do not suffer loss when we are godly. We, we benefit spiritually when we are godly, and others benefit as well. I mean, what is, what is, what is godliness? Well, think about this. What is, what is ungodliness? Ungodliness is simply living life as if God didn't exist. Right? It's doing all of your activities without any thought or recognition of God's priorities, of His power, of His grace, of His justice. It's just doing things completely unmindful of God. And I would say, in addition to that, his sovereignty, his, his authority, and his right to rule. So, of course, what does that then mean if we are godly? When the church and when the Christian is godly, when we put godliness on display, we are simply living life with respect to God. Right? We are living life with the thought of God. So any activity we do, we are asking ourselves, what does God think of this? Right? 
We could even go further and say, in doing a particular task, how can I honor God in this task? How has God equipped me for this work? Right? It's living life simply in the context of God. Being mindful of God's power, righteousness, justice, sovereignty, goodness, mercy, grace. Right? It's considering all that God is. It's just living life in that context. Always thinking of God. Always, and always thinking of what brings Him glory. And of course, no one lives a, no one can be godly and be fruitless at the same time. To be godly is to be fruitful because there is something inherent in godliness, in what we would say godlikeness, that spills over, that ends up being a blessing and a benefit to others that helps them grow. So never underestimate the pursuit of godliness. Never underestimate growth in holiness. We want to be growing in both of these things. We want to take every thought captive more and more in obedience to Christ. That would be practical godliness. But it begins in the mind, right? It begins in how you think, how you view life, how you view the world, how you view what the Lord is doing through the new creation. But holiness, growth in holiness also means a growth in devotion to God's glory. It also means a devotion to His people among whom God dwells. So those are things which are always to be present. And, 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 they, and these two things very well sum up the life of the church in Christ. And a lot of things simply kind of trickle down uh, from them. So what does godliness and holiness produce? I think we find our, the answer to this question, you know, maybe getting into some of the specifics. But I think the, one of the reasons that the churches know and that Peter doesn't really have to spell it out so specifically is that Peter wrote a letter before this one and we find very clearly what this holiness and godliness entails. So turn very quickly a couple pages over, might be one page, to 1 Peter. Because the same thing is going on, right? The same event is being anticipated and Peter is is writing in the very same context. Now, direct your attention to 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 7. And he says this, the end of all things is near. <gasps> what, the end of the universe? The end of the creation? No, the end of the old order. The end of the old Judaic order. The end of all things is near. It is upon us. Therefore, okay, in light of this, right? So it's not, the end of the world is coming, therefore, stop what you're doing and just wait for Jesus to come back. No, quite the opposite. It is unbelievers who despair, but we are earnest and attentive. So look at this. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. See, these things are remarkably powerful, but at the same time, remarkably ordinary, right? We don't look at things like that being of sound judgment and, and sober spirit. We don't look at that and think of that as very epic. And yet it has a profound impact, especially in the long term, over the, the, the life, vibrance, and effectiveness of the church. Be of sound judgment. Be of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So don't miss that there. Fervency in love, I think, prevents us from being so easily offended by our brothers and sisters. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. You know, we've talked about the, the, this, this thing that, that Israel really struggled with, especially in the desert. They complained all the time. They were always complaining. They were always casting aspersions on God's character, calling even His very holy presence into question. And so this is, 
among other things, is a, is, is a warning. It says, yeah, don't do that. Show hospitality, right? Show kindness to others. And do so without complaining. Do so without thinking it's this chore, that it's drudgery or a joyless, a, a joyless, uh, a joyless thing that you're doing. Show hospitality. Show love to strangers without complaining. I mean, complaining begets complaining. You find yourself whining about things, you're going to whine about other things. So verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So we have general giftedness, right? Wherever you are gifted, remember the God who gives it, remember it's of grace, and put it to work. And then he says, Whoever speaks, that is teachers, is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. So that's a, that, that, that is, again, that is, that is a, a godly activity. That is a holy activity. You want to you say one thing that distinguishes the church from any other assembly in this world? It is that we are proclaiming and explaining the oracles of God. We are teaching God's Word as fact, as authoritative, as, trans, as transforming. And we are speaking for God. So there is a fear and reverence when it comes to that. And then it says this, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Very important to avoid spiritual fatigue. Okay? We serve according to the strength which God supplies. Right? And I think we could, we could reflect on our life in serving the church. We could say, yeah, the Lord strengthens us in a variety of ways. Whether it's body or mind or heart, God strengthens us. He, it is He who provides the ability and even the willingness to want to serve in the first place. And we don't serve according to our own strength or wisdom. Why? So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Why do we say that end part? Because what is the goal of holiness? Glorifying God. It is a devotion to His glory above all these things. And we find that as we, in, a very, in very practical ways, as First Peter enumerates here, God is glorified through this holy and godly activity. That in all things, not some things, but that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever and all God's people said, Amen. So we understand that very clearly. We just refer to what Peter said earlier and say, yeah, these things are, 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 still, are still to be operational in your midst. And don't be put off. Don't be discouraged. Don't be stymied by the presence of false teachers who are denying the promises that Christ Himself made that He would show up and judge and inaugurate the new heavens and new earth. Be all of these things. Be loving. Be hospitable. Be prayerful. Be watchful. Teach and preach the Word. And serve one another. Right? Practice the one another's. And you notice that None of these things are detached from a clear Christian worldview. These are holy and godly activities because God says they are. They are acts of devotion rendered to God to advance His kingdom and to proclaim His glory among the nations. Until, and from today's point of view, until Christ returns and hands the kingdom over to the Father. Now, I think there's a couple amendments I would like to add to the instruction that Peter gives here concerning godly activity, concerning holy activity, sort of to help us understand not only that we should do these things, but how we should do them, right? And, and, and with what spirit should we do them? And, and I kind of had to think, you know, again, what are, what, are the various, what are some of the various challenges churches are facing today 
when it comes to the work that we do within the body of Christ. And I just want to throw out a few. Again, it's not, it's not exhaustive, but I, I really hope that you guys would take these things to heart because these are things that are going to, that are going to uh, aid in spiritual growth. They're going to aid in the, in the, in the, the advancement of, of the Gospel. It's faithful proclamation. And I think it's one of these things that strengthens us to, as we relate to one another, just on a, on a human level. I think, I think these things prevent division. So please take them to heart. And I would say feel free to add to this list. But here's the first one. In all of these things, in your holy and your godly behavior, apply consistency and apply diligence. So in whatever way you are serving, do so regularly. Right? Do regularly. Do consistently. Again, ful- fulfill your commitments. And I would say do them in terms of diligence. Do them with a standard of excellence. I was just talking to a brother yesterday. We understand that excellence is something that is not always achieved. We don't do everything with excellence every time. But what, but what matters is that standard is there. We understand that that is a standard. It's the same thing we encourage each other. Hey, we want to be like Jesus, right? Well, how often are we actually like Jesus? We're never going to live our life perfectly consistently with His. And yet, the standard remains, right? And of course, the standard reminds us that ultimately, we rely on Christ for everything. We rely on His righteousness and all of His provision on the basis of His death and resurrection keeps us from relying on ourselves. And yet, that is not to say that we then rest on our laurels and become lazy and careless. No, when we apply ourselves, when we apply holy activity and godly activity. We do so consistently. See, the consistency keeps us from hypocrisy. It keeps us from double-mindedness. And I think it allows us to even appreciate the opportunities that God has given us. And I think when we do things consistently, that also leads to other opportunities, greater opportunities to serve God and to serve His people. And so, of course, we do that with, with diligence. We apply ourselves well, pursuing excellence in every good work. So I think that's the first couple of things. And there's, there's some overlap there. The other thing too, I think, is teachability. Right? I think that's something that the church really struggles with today. is simply being teachable. Having a teachable heart. And this goes beyond simply the ability or the willingness to take correction. I think that's the starting point. right? Which is a major struggle for some of us. It's simply sitting down and taking correction, even if we may disagree with it. Right? That, that's come up often. But, but beyond this, teachability reflects an eagerness to see God's sanctifying work in you. Right? Because typically, when we correct one another, what's our authority? It's the Word of God. So we are bringing Scripture to bear in one another's lives. And so to have a truly teachable heart is not merely to listen, but it is to take action based on what correction is being brought forth. So there's an eagerness there, even an excitement to see how God's work will develop Christ-likeness, maturity, right? and an even deeper degree of teachability. Right? I mean, you're not going to be able to teach unless you're teachable yourself. Right? But being teachable means that there is a desire to see God's sanctifying work in your life. Okay? Not merely to tolerate the words of a brother or sister. And with that, I think there's this. There's patience. Right? 
And we've seen God's patience play out plenty in this book. Right? God is patient, and He is giving men time to repent because He doesn't desire that any would perish, but that all His people would come to repentance. That is why judgment in this context, and often in many different contexts, seems delayed because God is bringing people to salvation. So in the same manner, we are to be patient. See, godly, holy activity, a fruit of the Spirit, is to be patient. And so we too are patient with one another. We're willing to work in the field of the Lord, even though we may only plant the seed and water. I think that's something many of us struggle with. We are results-oriented people, right? Some of us maybe have gone from exercise program to exercise program to different diets. Why? Because we want results. And if we don't see results, we scrap it and we go on to the next thing. That's typically the mindset. That's really dangerous for the church person because we do a lot of work, the results of which we will never see in this life. So some of us plant, some of us only water. And remember, who is it that gives the increase? It's God that gives the increase. And if you try to interfere with that and give the increase, you may uproot the very thing you planted and watered. So don't interfere with God's timing or His power and wisdom. Right? Let God give the increase. That is a hard thing, and that's why I want to encourage you. I think, I think we have much, in my humble opinion, there is much more time that will go by before we finally witness Jesus Christ Himself hand the kingdom over to the Father. That may be hundreds of years from now. That may be thousands of years from now. And I know we go to work in, within the household of God and we desire to see results. I mean, think, think of it. I mean, to give an immediate example, think of that person that you had to go to and counsel, and you're like, man, I got a good word for them. I've got a verse here, and it's gonna, it's, I'm just gonna knock it out of the park. How can they, how can they, re, you know, refuse the word of God? And you go to them, and you've prayed over it, and you're just, you're anticipating good things, and you tell them what you have to tell them, and their only response is, that is so hurtful. How can you come in here and judge me like that? Yeah, so much for the fruit, right? <laughs> so much for the results that you desired. Right? I mean, you talk about watering. Maybe you need to take them back and hose them off a little bit. <laughs> clear their head a little bit. But that's neither here nor there. But patience, I think, on an, on, on an inhuman level is required to, to, to be faithful in working in God's kingdom. So I think along with that, with that patience is another one is persistence. I think sometimes we underestimate persistence. We don't think about it, right? This is not working. We're very pragmatic people. This isn't working. What is the next thing I can go on to? What's, the, what's this little inside track I can take to get the desired results? But no, we are to be patient, and patience means persistence. And I could say there's persistence in everything that Peter has mentioned here. Think about the last time you were persistent in prayer. Think about the last time you wept over someone or wept over your church. You pled with God. Right? You, and you asked Him according to His will. You were confident before, before the throne of grace. And you prevailed upon His tender mercies. And yet there was a delay. You, you, you asked Him, please, please answer this prayer, Lord. How often are we persistent in that? Or how often are we just dismissive? Yeah, bro, I'll pray for you. Rather than going consistently and repeatedly to the throne and pleading on their behalf, and even on your own behalf. Sometimes we don't even pray for ourselves. And that's, as Peter underscores here, and even Jesus in the Gospels, prayer is a way that we are watchful, that we are able to discern what is going on. Right? Think about Abraham as that example. 
right? When he was praying to the Lord before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he say? Far be it from you, Lord. Far be it from you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I mean, some, 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 more, some more pious, uh, ignorant people would look at that and say, oh, well, that's the Lord presuming upon the character of God. That, you know, Abraham's being awfully bold. Man, we should, would, would that we were like Abraham, right? And I would say Abraham knew exactly what he was doing. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He knew he was talking to the Lord, and he prevailed upon his grace. And guess what? God answered according to his grace. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. It's about time we realize the God that we are talking to when we go and pray. That He wants us to, He wants to be asked for things. That He wants to be prevailed upon for His grace and His provision. And yet sometimes we pray a one and done. Oh, God didn't answer. And in the same cases, patience. On to the next one. On to the next one. But what sort of people shall we be? We are a persistent people. If we are to be holy and godly, we are to be persistent. In our relationships, in our discipleship, in any work of the gospel, we constantly prevail upon the goodness of God. A holy, godly person knows that God is good. Right? And like Abraham, will pray again and again and again because he knows that God is good and knows that God answers prayer. We're also, we all, but in the midst of this, we also want to be discerning. We want to be discerning. We want to be studious, thoughtful, watchful, able to apply biblical wisdom. We want to know what's going on in our world and what particular things are challenging the church, right? I mean, the church is, is going to be challenged throughout time with, with a variety of things, right? It's not always going to be the same thing every time. It's going to, sometimes it's, 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 it's going to be a different manifestation of godlessness. It's interesting even listening to uh, one particular pastor who was a part of the SBC. And even he had to admit, this was in the last year or two, even he had to admit that critical race theory caught him completely by surprise. There was, an, there was an absence of watchfulness that prevented them from being able to assess and recognize and even respond to this issue, which pushes a completely bankrupt and godless philosophy. And the churches just welcomed it with open arms without any discernment, or with very little. And, and, and the, man, the gentleman here who admitted this is a godly man, a wise man. Right. And yet he even said, wow, what happened? Right. We got broadsided by this. And so the church, to be holy and godly, must be discerning and wise and appeal to the wisdom that is found only in Jesus Christ. So there's just a few examples. Of course, there are more, but I think that those are some of the things we definitely want to apply today. Whether it's in our prayer, our love, our hospitality, our teaching, our service, anything. These are things I believe that are part and parcel to being a faithful church. So with that said, let's move on then to, move on to verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed and burning. So, I, so I, I tried to plan for this occasion because pretty much this, is, this parallels what we went over last Lord's Day, so I don't need to flesh this out in depth here. But it's the same, it's the same occasion, the same event that is being anticipated. And so, of course, Peter makes this delightful judgment sandwich here and says, in light of this coming day of the Lord, this is how you conduct yourself. 
So while, while you are conducting yourselves in holiness and godliness consistently, you are also to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Do not be blind to this judgment that is coming. So this word hastening is key. It's found five other places in the New Testament, and they all allude to hurrying, to making haste, that something is just on the horizon. And that's one of the reasons that we that I contend that this is something that is happening in the first century that is going to happen from Peter's perspective, perhaps within a couple of years. So this hastening of the day of God. So on one hand, according to God, everything is going on as planned. And yet, we have seen him before in the scriptures interacting in real time with real people that there, there, there can be a, an apparent changing a timeline, changing of a timeline on things. One example comes from 2 Kings chapter 20. It says this, in, the, in, the, in, the, in those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. Good King Hezekiah is getting sick. Isaiah the prophet comes to him and says, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. How would you like a message like that? Hello, Isaiah. Hey, king, you're about to die. All right. So then Hezekiah, said, Hezekiah does this. He turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight, which he did. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So Isaiah comes out, and, and, he, and he is, uh, or, or Isaiah goes out of the middle court. The word of the Lord comes to him, saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will heal you. Right? I will add 15 years to your life. So there was a set schedule presented in, in real time to a person that you are going to die, and then of course Hezekiah prays, and it would appear that the Lord changes this timeline and adds 15 years to Hezekiah's life. Not for his own sake, but for the Lord's sake and for his servant uh, David. And then, of course, uh, Hezekiah eats a fig cake, and then he recovers. So imagine what cake can do for you. Um, So, just in terms of our understanding, this hastening, uh, again, not a make-or-break doctrine, but it tells us something of of the involvement of the church regarding the prophetic timeline of God. So, as Matthew Poole summarizes it, this, this is basically this hastening and looking forward to the day of God is an inner disposition. So Poole says, by fervent desire of it and diligent preparation for it. So he believes this hastening is simply an attitude that underscores this, this hastening and, and looking forward to the coming of Christ. John Gill expands further. And with patience and cheerfulness, wait for it. Yea, they should, <laughs> they should be hasting unto it or hastening it. For though the day is fixed for the coming of Christ, nor can it be altered as His coming will not be longer, it cannot be sooner, yet it becomes the saints to pray earnestly for it, that it may be quickly and for the accomplishment of all things that go before it, prepare for it, and lead unto it. So whether or not the church's involvement in it through prayer, perhaps even preaching the gospel, from maybe from our standpoint, hastens the day, quickens it, kind of moves it up with the timeline, what we do know is that this, there is a def- definitive attitude that underscores all of this. Does the church desire the Lord to come? Yes, we do desire Him to show up. Even from this side of the cross, we desire that the Lord Jesus, hopefully sooner than later, will make an end of all opposition. That He will put all of His enemies under His feet. So we pray for that, and of course we preach that. We preach doom for the unrepentant sinner, 
and life and salvation and joy and righteousness for those who do repent and embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. But no matter what God's timeline is, I think the principle stands. We do pray earnestly for it. We are actively involved in the kingdom's proclamation. And even in a sense, Jesus in Matthew 20, 24 gives us a timeline. You don't have to turn there, but the first thing he says about this is that this, is this coming of Christ is going to take place upon that generation. We've been through that dozens of times. But also, in verse 14 of Matthew 24, we read, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So world in this context doesn't mean every inhabitant of planet earth. But Jesus is speaking of the oikumene, which means the Roman Empire. That fundamentally the gospel, before Jesus would return in judgment, would go to the ends of the oikumene, the, the ends of the Roman Empire. So, same word is used in Luke 2. Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world was to be taxed, right? He wasn't putting taxes on, you know, the former United States of America, but just the Roman Empire. So, context is key in this. And indeed, the gospel did go throughout the entire Roman Empire to be preached before Jesus came back. So, just to say, there is somewhat of a timeline there, but the faster that the gospel is preached, faithful to reach cities, and by extension, the Roman Empire, the end would come. So from a human point of view, that would be a hastening of the so-called day of God. So just to, just to be thinking of that. So of course, the question is, the question becomes, if this has already happened, what's in it for the church today? And I would say, nearly the same thing as Peter is explaining, because God's standard has not changed. We are still to conduct ourselves in a godly and holy manner. That's a constant. As long as, long as God's people has, have been God's people, that is the standard. We conduct ourselves in a godly and holy manner. Okay? We continue to witness and anticipate the gradual triumph of the new creation over the old. Remember, we are in that tension, the already not yet. The new creation has been inaugurated through Christ's death and resurrection. And we are seeing in the preaching of the gospel the gradual advancement and victory of the new over the old. I think, we, I think most of us in here agree on that. And I would say too, we are still to anticipate another day of the Lord. The Lord Jesus continues to exercise His judgment over the nations in both judgment and salvation. So we are still living in anticipation of a final day of the Lord where the corruptible puts on the incorruptible, death itself is swallowed up in victory, and of course Jesus hands His kingdom over to the Father. Romans, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 is my authority for that. So, of course, we desire the hastening and coming of Christ in that regard as well. Um, and, of course, the reminder, end of verse 12, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So, once again, we remind ourselves of the context is that that old order is being put away and nothing should deter the Christian from living as he is. By faith in Christ, resting in His grace, pursuing godliness, pursuing holiness. Because the old order is fading away. It is being burned up. And as Peter has said before, it's being discovered for what it really is. And just to, again, in closing, to kind of add something to our study of, of last week, just as a reminder, when we say that the old order is burning away, it's not to say that those who 
we're living in that day that there is somehow um, a problem with the law of God. There wasn't a problem with the Old Testament in and of itself. It's God's Word. It's true. It's infallible. It is useful, right? It's a guide for life. The problem is that false teachers, in the way they were teaching it, failed to use it in order to point to Christ's fulfillment of it. And of course, His subsequent reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you are reading today the, New, the Old Testament and failing to read it in the context of Christ's accomplishments, you're reading it wrong. And I would also say, you're teaching it wrong. Okay, we call it, the, call it the Old Covenant for a reason. It didn't say all that there was to say regarding God's redemptive work in this world. Okay. So that was the issue. This is exactly what, now look at the text again, what makes it these elementary principles? Peter repeats this word, the elements will melt with intense heat. We kind of link these elements with, on one hand, the entire temple system and the old creation, but also it's elementary in the sense that there was a failure to connect the old covenant to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right. So as long as we do that, the old covenant is simply going to be blocks that we're stacking in a row. Right? It's meant to point to Christ, but it could never lead a person to Christ because the law can't save. So that's the issue. And so we have to understand that in the same way. The law is useful, but it cannot save. And to rest in one's performance on works of the law is as great of a rebellion against the gospel as is outright paganism. Paul's clear on that. And so, of course, we close with that reminder. It'll, all those elements will be destroyed with intense heat, the burning away, the discovery of, its, of, of the old order's powerlessness to save, its, its frail, faulty, and even fraudulent system, especially in regards to salvation and what it means to be godly. All of its apostasy will melt away with intense heat. Okay. It needs to happen. It continues to happen. And of course, in the midst of all this, the church remains preaching the gospel and raising that godly, holy standard. But, you know, the warning is clear. And to bring it, and to bring it around again, this is a, as Bauckham says, this is a revelation of Jesus from which none can escape. All will be revealed. All will be made clear. And so the message is the same to us. If we find ourselves clinging to the old creation, not resting in Christ's finished work, the call is clear is to repent from your unbelief, repent from your self-righteousness, repent of any reliance you may have on your own power to make you right with God. That will leave you in, in the old creation which is meant to be burned up in full and be revealed for what it really is. Repent and embrace Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith and the author of and perfecter of the new creation. See, all our hope, guys, lies in Him. And so the warning is so clear. The warning is so plain. And just to kind of lead into next week, our hope is there in Christ, in His promise, looking for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, the old is gone and the new has come. And it behooves the Christian to pay attention to it and to cling to just that, all relying, of course, on the grace and provision of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and care for us. We thank You that we can reflect once again on this uh, 
time of judgment, a judgment that uh, happened centuries ago and yet in a way still continues today. We can view this judgment, Lord, to be warned by it, even to glorify You that You vindicate Your name, You vindicate the the ministry of Your Son, You vindicate Your people, and we can thank You, Lord, because it is just the first of many examples of You putting Your enemies under Your feet. That You are faithful to subdue and conquer and to be triumphant. And Lord, we recognize that yes, there is a time for suffering. There is a time for, for, for pruning and even burning away from, from Your church anything that clings to the old. Lord, we know that You are zealous for the holiness of Your people. And I pray that we would be holy and godly. That we would devote ourselves to every good work that You have laid out for us to do. That we would rely on Your power, Your wisdom, Your Word. That we would speak forth from that and nothing else. That we would be able to speak with authority knowing that only You can accomplish, Lord, in Your power according to Your desires. And in light of that, Lord, help us even in our weakness to find our strength in You. That You desire to use us as instruments of of Your kingdom to proclaim the Gospel faithfully, to see it go to all the nations. And we know, Lord, that even, even here now, breathing, that You have not completed that work, but that You are faithful to do it, and that You do it through us. And I pray, God, that in light of all the instruction that went forth today, that we would be able to take the time sometime this week and reflect on it. That, that sometimes, Lord, we, we uh, need to repent from the various attitudes that we foster and nurture regarding the Gospel, regarding You Yourself, and even regarding one another. Um, guard us from that, Lord. Give us humble, teachable hearts and help us to, as insofar as we are able, even in our immaturity and frailty, to view one another in light of how You have viewed us. That You have lavished Your grace and love on us. That in Your own power and in Your own sovereign grace, You have brought us to Yourself so that You can dwell with the people and to uh, draw near to us, Lord, and that in response we can draw near to You and to be Your devoted people, fruitful, um, effective, and strong uh, in You and in the power of Your might. We know that there is so much work to do. And Lord, we can only be persistent to constantly um, prevail upon Your grace Lord, and to, and to ask You based on Your character again and again that You would do Your work. And that even those who are, in un, who are in unbelief would come to the realization that surely, surely the Lord dwells in this place. That You are with us. Um, and that we would be faithful to, uh, to Your Word, especially in light of the promises that You, that you make. We can rest in those and we can have totally com- total confidence that uh, you will finish what you started. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.